I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as ghosts, ghouls, franchises, and director's bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. Here we are on July 7th, 2020, recording episode 44, Haunted Houses 2, because somehow we left one of our favorite Haunted House movies off the first episode. Damn right. We didn't actually forget that film. It's just between Josh not being able to pick one movie, we had to split it in two. And uh, how can you not do Amityville Horror? I got made fun of for not doing that. So we did that on the last one. And on this episode, we're going to do House from 1985, which is one of our favorites. And we both grew up on it. And Josh is going to break our save remakes and reboots for that episode rule and do 13 Ghost. Yeah, because, uh, you know, I already did it the last episode. Let's just swing for the fucking fences. But before we dive into that, let's go over some news and announcements. And uh, there's probably a correction in here because we don't do things right. We have a little bit of extra news, I guess, on this one because we were supposed to record a week ago and we put it off because I like to make it where I only have like two or three days to edit for some reason with a full-time job and three children. And that's not why the episodes go up late at all. <laughs> exactly. They used to go up on time before quarantine. Though, so. This is true. I saw that Kevin Bacon says he's up for being Freddy Krueger, which was Robert England's idea. So if they're interested in having him, he's willing to do it. And I might could see it. I'll get into my opinion on that when we get, uh, we get into what we've been watching. If Robert came up with the idea... It's got to be at least slightly on point, but we'll save that. You're right. In a um, huge coincidence, as of today, the day we started recording, the Amityville house went up for sale yet again for $850,000. Nice. Which I, I think on the last episode, I'd have to go back and look at my notes, but I believe I said it just sold in 2016. So uh, here we are again. Interesting how much that house uh, has turnover. That's what I was going to say. It always sells for well under market value because the market value is like 1.2, 1.3 mil or something like that. Nobody's reported the house being haunted whatsoever besides the Lutz family. But it seems like people move in and move right back out like two or three years later, which you could say, hey, they're just trying to make a profit because they bought the house so cheaply, but they always sell it for a cheap amount too. Yeah. So what if it is haunted and uh, they just don't want to look like a bunch of crazies? Yeah, it's very possible. Or it could just have like bad plumbing or something. Yeah. A lot of black sludge in the pipes. Fucking lead paint. <laughs> That's what it is. It's the lead paint. <laughs> it was the lead paint the whole fucking time. <laughs> this isn't so much of an announcement, but a couple weeks ago, drive-ins across America, which there's not that many of them anymore, decided to uh, play Evil Dead, which we went and saw. Josh... Myself, his wife, my buddy that was staying with me, and uh, we got to hang around my Subaru Outback and have a good little time there. Yep, only about 300 drive-ins left, and ours was one of the first ones to reopen. Interesting thing I saw this weekend, apparently Walmart is going to turn a few hundred of their parking lots into drive-ins. No, that's just to get you in there, and then they shut the gate, and they're like, ha-ha, you're in a FEMA camp now. <laughs> <laughs> Which gate? It's in the parking lot. It's not inside. That's why it's a drive-in. Haven't you seen the videos of that fast deployment shit that comes off the back of trucks? They got a plan. <laughs> I think it's kind of neat, though, to make it where people can go to the movies again during these odd times we live in. Yeah, that'd be really cool, especially for people that are like, you know, drive in. What's that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they got enough parking lots They're even in like rural parts of the country that do not have a lot of things around them. They're still usually a Walmart. Yeah, yeah. There's there's one 24 minutes from my house. <laughs> 
But uh, I mean, that's really all I have for news and announcements right now, unless you have anything to add to that before we go into corrections. I'm sure that a uh, listener could email in and tell me different, but I only noted one correction or additional information to add. And that was when we were talking about the uh, the show on on House on Haunted Hill, Terrifying But True. We were trying to remember who the host originally was because yeah. it ended up being Peter Graves. It was yeah. originally supposed to be hosted by Christopher Lee, and I couldn't remember who it was on the last episode. Oh, that would have worked. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it worked either way, but as far as what we watched, let's see. I actually watched quite a bit in that three-week window, but it's because my wife and kids weren't here, so while I was working on the house, I could watch things. I watched The Order Season 2, which I enjoyed more than the first season, but I liked the first season, so I mean, huh. it's, it's just fun. There's nothing, like, super special about it. I finished Sabrina, hey. which, I mean, that, I don't know. I, I'm really weird about that one. Like, that one I'll probably watch every time there's a season out, but I can't say there's anything fantastic about it either it's funny sometimes what i was most excited about is i really got into that show the magicians when the first two seasons came out and somehow i like just kind of got late on the third one and never got called up probably starting a podcast or something (laughs) and i uh marathon seasons three and four over the last week and a half and still love the fucking show i gotta watch season five now which is the final season and i started reading the book trilogy on it oh wow yeah, I think the wife's caught up on that, but I was in and out on it. That was mainly her jam. I really liked it. It's got really good character development, which goes a long way with me. And I also watched I'll Be Gone in the Dark, episode one on HBO, which that is the documentary on the Golden State Killer based off of Michelle McNamara's book before she passed away, which was Patton Oswald's wife. So he's on the show talking about it. Two episodes have aired now because it comes on on Sundays and... The killer actually confessed to all 13 of the murders a few days after the first episode aired. Nice. I mean, not nice, but. (laughs) I mean, he's like 77. So, I mean, he's done for anyways, but I guess they had enough damning evidence on him. But uh, what have you watched? To come back to Kevin Bacon, uh, you should have left, which is uh, a a new, new, I guess we'll go more (laughs) psychological horror. Okay. That uh, he's in it and. the wife was literally telling me about, it's like, you know, uh, Robert England gave the green light to Kevin Bacon taking over as Freddy Krueger. And I'm like, what? And then as we're watching this movie and then it comes to the scene and I'm like, I could see that guy playing Freddy Krueger. And the wife's like, you do realize that's Kevin Bacon, right? <laughs> <laughs> Is this kind of like me and James Woods being in house on haunted Hill? Like you just didn't realize who it was at the time. Uh, yeah. I just didn't realize who it was at the time. And then fantasy Island, which Ooh. what a missed opportunity is that's my opinion. That's all I'm going to say on it. Here's the friggin' oddball. So, uh, 4th of July, we go up to the wife's mom's house and there's this movie I've heard brought up from, I don't from the fifties, the sixties. It's, it's old, it's old and black and white. I hear it brought up all the time and she's talked about it. So many times I was like, let's just watch it. Arsenic and old lace. And okay. it is a comedy whodunit. With air quotes on the who done it because you know who done it, but it was <laughs> really good and fucking okay. hilarious. Not really horror, but it just took me by such surprise and it's so outside of my wheelhouse that I had to bring it up. Lastly, and most recently, I think we're going back to 2012 or 2014 with this one. You can't kill Stephen King. Have you seen this movie? No, never even heard of it. 
it's worth one watch. It's a comedy horror <laughs> that's just off the mark. But uh, there's a scene where like some really good punk rock starts playing and like this obscure band was on the soundtrack that I discovered a new band and I think they've only put out one album and then disbanded or something. But uh, yeah, you can't <laughs> kill Stephen King and that kind of sums up the movie. But yeah, that's uh, that's all all that was worth noting this this time around. I feel like I got a lot more in than I normally do. And you got a lot less in. <laughs> no, we just watched a lot of dude. We watched this one movie, uh, deep murder or some shit. Is that an adult film? It's a murder movie based on a <laughs> porno set. Are you serious? I was really joking. Yeah, but there's like no boobs or anything. It's not that stupid. Um, like the other one where Ron Jeremy's dick is attacking everyone, but it's got a uh, Jerry, <laughs> uh, Jerry O'Connell in it. So it's like, ah, we'll give it a shot. Not worth the time. Mm-mm. Well, I guess before we pull more obscure movies out of the uh, backlogs of I don't even fucking know what, we should probably dive into the movies. And I'm going to start with House from 1985, which is one of my favorite haunted house movies. And I hadn't watched it in 15, 20 years because I didn't want to damage that memory. And I had to go back and watch it a few times for the podcast. And I do want to say not everyone has seen this movie and it is currently on Amazon Prime. So we are not funded by them in any way. Call me if you want to. But if you've never seen the film and you already order all your shit on Amazon, you might as well check out the movie. This one is a guilty pleasure of mine as a kid. And I would say it currently still is a a, a guilty pleasure. Oddly enough, I remember it being absolutely terrifying and giving me nightmares. And then I watched it as an almost 38 year old adult. And I was like, holy shit, this movie's a horror comedy. And I never realized that as a child. Yeah, I watched this one about every two years. This was on the Jesus tapes. <laughs> and I'll bring this up when you get to the scene, but it gets to a certain part. And then the rest of the movie was recorded over. So as Ooh. a kid for years, I never saw the rest of it. And then finally got to see the end uh, when my cousin, it may have even been before he was working at the video store, but uh, eventually saw it. And yeah, love this movie. Um, but yeah, go it goes back to seeing it, you know, originally way too young. But looking on it now, it's like, what? But. I'll bring that up. I'll bring that up on a couple of scenes. <laughs> this movie, and I didn't realize this because I didn't know who these people were 15, 20 years ago. <laughs> but this movie is brought to you by some horror royalty. When I came home from work, whatever Friday night to, to watch this movie for the podcast, I sat down with my dinner and I cracked up my beer and I hit play and I saw the, the names in the opening credits. I was like, holy shit. The movie is directed by Steve Miner who directed Friday the 13th, 2 and 3, Warlock, which, God, I want to cover that series at some point, (laughs) H2O, Lake Placid, and the Day of the Dead remake. So those are all heavy hitters. I mean, this guy invented Jason Voorhees. Well, heavy hitters, you said Lake Placid. You can't put those two together. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, all of these people, real big in, in the horror industry, okay? Oh, yeah. The movie was written by, story part anyways, Fred Decker who we've talked about on the podcast before, Night of the Creeps, Monster Squad. He also wrote House 2. And it was also written by Ethan Wiley, who wrote the screenplay for House 1 and House 2. And then he directed House 2. And he also, I can't remember if he wrote, directed, or both, but Children of the Corn 5, which I've never even seen the fifth one. But, I mean, he's been around the block, so he wasn't really so much in the royalty section there. <laughs> but we go to the producer, who was Sean Cunningham, Hey, who directed and wrote Friday the 13th, the original and produced 
a lot, lot of porn. Of shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he did do some of that with Craven, but he also did a lot just in general, especially yeah. in the horror genre. There's only a few famous faces and really a few characters in this film that I'd like to go over. We got William Cat playing Roger Cobb, okay? And he was in Carrie and Great American Hero is what most people know him from. And House 4. Other than that, I'm sure he's in other shit, but that's what's applicable here. Yeah. We got George Went in it as Harold, the neighbor. And he's fucking hilarious in this movie. And he's one of the things I guess I just didn't realize was comedy as a kid. But everybody knows him from Cheers. Uh, as far as horror goes, Dreamscape, which awesome movie we got to yeah. cover. I don't know where the fuck that one goes. Wherever nightmares go that don't have on Elm Street at the end. <laughs> and uh, VFW recently, right? Yeah. And then, oh my God, Richard Mall's in this movie is Big Ben. And to me, Richard Mall is always bull from Night Court. You're damn right. <laughs> because my parents watched that and MASH, man. That's all I remember growing up. <laughs> and he was hilarious on that. And he's done a ridiculous amount of voice actor work in cartoons, just genre-wise or, or, or comic book-wise. He's Scorpion and Two-Face in the Spider-Man and Batman cartoons. So that's pretty ah. cool. And uh, the only other actress I'd say that pops up a good bit is Kay Lenz, who plays, uh, I don't her name her last name's not Cobb, but it's Roger's ex-wife, Sandy. And she was on a bunch of TV, but I thought it was really funny. She was American Maid on the Tick cartoon. Oh, just random. I want to throw that out there. And a couple of other people that, that had something to do with this film that count as horror royalty is Kane Hodder was the stunt coordinator of this film. Yep. And Harry Manfredini was the composer and he's who invented the kill, 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 ma, 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 ma. Yeah. Why don't more people <laughs> talk about this movie? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, honestly, everyone I know that's a horror fan and, and roughly our age when I bring this movie up, usually they've seen it. Even uh, one of the guys at work that apparently was a few episodes behind and he, he, he marathoned from um, Slumber Party Massacre up until the most recent episode in the past week or two. Oh, damn. I uh, love this movie and remembered it. So, But uh, a little bit of the backstory of this film. Fred Decker and Ethan Wiley, who are the two writers of the film, along with Steve Miner and Shane Black, which, oh my God, Shane Black, let's just throw his name in here for a second. <laughs> As a writer, this guy wrote Lethal Weapon, Monster Squad, Last Boy Scout, Last Action Hero, Long Kiss Goodnight. He wrote a bunch of shit, man. I, one of the Iron Man movies got Monster Squad out of there and some really good fucking action movies from when we were growing up. Yeah. So he was a pretty accomplished uh, screenplay writer himself. But the, the four of them plan to make their own horror anthology film after seeing the Twilight Zone movie. Ah. Decker used one of the segments from their anthology they were writing for this film. Okay. He actually wrote it as a straight horror flick, no comedy in it. And Wiley added the comedy after the fact. Steve Miner wanted him to do that because he wanted to use this as a transitional film to get him out of doing straight horror, right? So that if this was a comedy horror, then it shows that he can do horror and comedy, which I guess it worked because he ended up doing Wonder Years, Dawson's Creek, and Smallville after this. Hey, there you go which I had no clue that Steve Miner worked on any of those. <laughs> I'm sure I would have figured that out when we got to the Friday the 13th franchise, but yeah, I had no idea. <laughs> the movie was shot in eight weeks, which is, uh, I guess twice as long as your, your 30 days. We see a lot right yeah. in the genre. However, it took three months to make all of the creatures. I can see that, which there are quite a few of them in the film. And, um, 
the poster of this movie gets brought up all the time because it's a doorbell with a disembodied hand pushing the, the bell and it says, ding dong, you're dead. That was the tagline of the film. That doesn't happen in the movie in the slightest. It was a horrible choice. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that though. Ding dong, you're dead. Just not for this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that's about all I had for backstory. Other than things that'll pop up as we go. So let's go ahead and dive into the movie. We start off, you know, as so many older horror movies did with just the title card and showing the uh, fucking horror royalty of this film. And we see a creepy house at odd angles with different color filters on it. And I think I saw this on a movie recently. Yeah, yeah. I can't think of which one. <laughs> think it was from the 70s. Yeah, and it had creepy eye windows. So I'm pretty sure that was uh, an homage to the Amityville opening credits. And like we said before, Haunted House movie has been pulling from that forever. So, yeah. But for the opening scene of the film, we see a POV shot glide through a yard past a house to the front where we see a grocery delivery boy roll up on a scooter and he goes and knocks on the door or attempts to knock on it. And it just kind of fucking slides open and he calls out to Miss Hooper. And I want to point that out as the first tribute name in the movie because it's probably Toby Hooper. Okay. Yep. And Mrs. Hooper does not respond. He's okay with uh, just leaving the groceries there and collecting the bill next week because, uh, that shit was okay in the 80s, right? You could just say, oh, I'll get the money later. And he hears a noise upstairs and goes to investigate because that's what people do in horror movies for some reason. And he heads upstairs towards the noise and he's checking out some sick artwork, as he refers to it, until he finds Mrs. Hooper hanging from a noose in a bedroom in front of a closet. And he says sick on this artwork. This artwork's insane. I want to find where I can collect them all from Etsy or something and, and hang them throughout your house. <laughs> my house can't do it because my children have nightmares, but I'll try to cover some of the paintings as they come up, but they're really fucking creepy. You can tell a lot of work was put into them for this movie. Yeah. But we cut from there to a cemetery where there's a funeral happening for Mrs. Hooper. And there's not very many attendees there. And the ones that are there want to let Roger Cobb, who's our, our star showing up in the movie, know that his aunt was not crazy. She was a lot of shit, but she wasn't crazy. Okay. And I guess that's kind of setting up her state of mind for us for the rest of the film. Foreshadowing. Yes. And this uh, this movie has some hard cuts here at the beginning and then some odd cuts later that I'm going to cover as we get to them. And uh, there's something I wonder if you noticed. And I watched this movie a few times just for this, but I'll wait till we get there. I'm getting ahead of myself. All right. We cut to a book signing and we're in a bookstore, a long line of people from all walks of life. And I'm sure there are hidden film people in this line. I just feel like there is. <laughs> and we see that Roger is doing a book signing for a horror novel of his. And we can see that all the fans are very eccentric and are not happy to hear that his next novel is about his real life Tom and Nam. It's always a letdown, right? When your favorite uh, fiction author decides to do some real life shit. I know, right? Like, get don't give me real horror. <laughs> just give exactly. me the fake horror. <laughs> we find out from a crazy fan that Roger was married to a another celebrity, a woman that was an actress of some sort. And apparently people like her as well. And we also find out that his agent is not excited about him doing this this book on Vietnam because he said people are sick of hearing about that shit, right? And <laughs> you can see when people are asking him in the book signing that his agent is not happy with the responses, right? Yeah. So everybody really wants him to stick with horror novels, right? This would be like if Stephen King decided to write a book about being a coke addict. I might, I might read a second book in my adult life. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I would definitely read a book about Stephen King being a coke addict 
written by himself. That'd be fascinating. <laughs> the other movie we just watched on 4th of July was Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> <laughs> Which she said was entirely written and directed on Below. So. <laughs> oh. It's the only movie he ever directed entirely on Below. Yep. It's also the only movie he entirely directed. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but uh, back at Roger's place, we can see that he's living the bachelor life and has writer's block. And by bachelor life, I mean, he's living off of like Swanson fucking TV dinners <laughs> in the microwave that apparently doesn't even unbox like a fucking savage. Uh, lonely man meals. I know. I know. And we can see that he apparently regularly calls a detective about his missing son. And the detective's like, I'll let you know when we know something, right? So this has got to be something he does regularly. And um, in the book signing, he mentioned an incident. So you know, he's recently divorced and something's up with the kid now, right? So that yeah. just kind of lets you know where he where he sets and maybe why he's having a bit of writer's block. But Roger's wife, Sandy, calls him from some sort of award ceremony to check on him. because She heard that he lost his aunt. And he, he makes sure he like cranks up a stereo and acts like he's yelling at the guys playing poker. Like he's at a party and forgot about her award ceremony. I, I guess he just wants her to feel like he's living a normal life and you can tell that she actually cares about him. So this isn't a divorce because they don't care about each other. Right. Yeah. Like it's, it's something else. The important takeaway from this phone conversation though, is that he went by his aunt's house and Sandy's like, you got to quit fucking doing that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that night we see Roger have a nightmare about a zombie bursting out of the ground where his son's playing and grabbing him by the throat. So he packs up his shit and hits the road. That's a really fun scene. <laughs> it's actually kind of traumatizing. That is one of the scenes that scared me as a kid. Cause I was always waiting on the uh, hand to come out and swap my Tonka trucks away and, and grab my junk or something. You played outside <laughs> <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> my backyard, which is where this kid was. Okay. It's not safe. <laughs> But Roger goes to his aunt's estate and uh, meets up with a real estate agent whose last name is Craven, and the house is sold by Craven Realty. So that's yeah. going to be honoring a horror icon part two, I guess. <laughs> and um, I mean, yeah, you got Craven and, and Hooper. What else were they fucking doing in 85? <laughs> but um, we find out that Roger lost his parents at a young age, and his aunt raised him in that house. And we find out through conversation, this uncle is a great fisherman. There are giant fish trophies throughout the house. And when we see the pool in the backyard, Roger gets a flashback of doing some yard work for his aunt while his son's playing. And uh, his son, Jimmy, just vanishes. He doesn't see him anywhere. He runs around the house. He can't find him. There's a car that randomly peels off, which you feel like is going to come back in a play later, and it doesn't. Yeah. He alerts Sandy, runs around back, and he can see Jimmy drowning in the pool, and he dives in to save him, but he can't find him when he gets in the small pool, right? So something's up there. After they check out the pool, the real estate agent takes uh, Roger back to the workshop in the back and almost impales him with a giant fucking harpoon gun that's loaded. <laughs> and for some reason, they don't acknowledge this happening. They don't. Like, <laughs> it launches across the room, sticks in a, um, oh God, what are they called? A support in a post. support beam, an inch or two away from Roger's eye. And he looks like, what the fuck? For just a second. But then they just start going into a conversation. It's so out of place. And... Um, I might I might hit back on that a little bit later with with a theory, but because yeah, um, the agents are like, you know, you could fix this place up, make it a guest house. <laughs> exactly. Uh, 
It's fucking fantastic. But um, they're, they're standing in front of a painting, basically. And that's what the real estate agent leads them to. And we can see in this painting that there's a bedroom closet door. And it's real abstract. Everything's like kind of crazy and crooked and floating around. With the aunt standing in front of it. And that's the closet she hung herself in front of. And there's a grandfather clock, a mirror, a pocket watch, a tied-up rope, and a bathroom sink, right? All clues, <laughs> all clues, and a dirty rag covering the top left-hand corner of the painting that they do not move and we do not get to see at this time. We find out that Mrs. Hooper thought the house was haunted, and we even get a flashback of right after Jimmy is taken where she's telling the police that it's haunted, and the ghost took them, and they think she's bad shit crazy. And after all these painful memories, Roger grabs the kerosene, pours it all over the house, lights it on fire at the end. That's what I would have done. But no, instead he tells the real estate agent that he's going to keep the house. It's not for sale anymore. He's going to move in. So all those great, great memories he had. <laughs> like the disappearance of his child. <laughs> right, right. We get the first night at the house. We don't get the cool paranormal activity or Amityville title card, but that's what's happening here. And, and basically this movie is a series of days or nights, which isn't really clear. And I'll bring that up in a second, but that night we can see that the change of scenery has not helped Rogers writer's block. And he decides to take a break from not typing on his giant word processor. That is bigger than a desktop computer. (laughs) And he hears something upstairs and he goes upstairs and he checks in a child's room, which I'm assuming is his room because it has a lot of older toys. It's not like it was Jimmy's room. I think that was his room when he lived there. And then he goes into his aunt's room and he sees her standing in front of the closet, getting on a chair with a noose around her neck. And she says, it tricked me, Roger. I didn't think it could, but it did. And then she jumps off the fucking chair and vanishes right as the uh, noose should pop, right? Yep. And we see Roger go to the bathroom and contemplate taking some fucking sleeping pills and then passing out in his childhood bed. And I do want to bring up that the camera angles have to be intentional every time he goes to this bathroom mirror. The way the camera is set up, he opens the mirror and it's at the perfect angle for the mirror to shut and you see somebody standing behind him from the doorway. Perfect for jump scare. We'll call it the jump scare angle, right? Just because the way the mirrors lined up doesn't fucking happen, but they tease it like 97 times in this movie. And I hadn't seen it in so long. I was just waiting for uh, a zombie or something to be standing there. Right. And it never happened. (laughs) Ready for the braces attack for poltergeist (laughs) two? Yeah. Something, anything. The next day we see Roger taking out the trash and he's admiring his uh, attractive neighbor jogging to go across the street. Oh, so not, not his next door neighbor. (laughs) No, no, not his next door neighbor who startles him immediately afterwards because he he sees him checking out Tanya across the street. And it, it's Harold, right? And um, he starts talking about the crazy old bitch next door that <laughs> nobody must have liked, the blah, blah, blah. And he wouldn't be surprised if one of her family members killed her. And Roger informs him that it was his aunt. And then George went, you know, says she was just a lovely woman, pillar of the community. It's fucking fantastic. Yeah, his delivery is great. Yeah, yeah. He, he's really funny in this movie. And Roger lets him know that he's staying at the house for some solitude so that he can write. And Harold realizes who Roger is. And apparently he's his biggest fan. And I mean, like, carrying an entire novel without the cover. <laughs> Or the spine of the book. It's just the pages in his back pocket for some fucking reason, which he couldn't sign. So after Roger narrowly escapes his biggest fan, who might be psychotic, he goes in the house to write. And we see first a mini nom flashbacks in the film. And we see that Roger had a buddy named Ben, who they call Big Ben. 
And like I said, it's uh, it's Bull from Night Court, big dude. Yeah. And we can see that during the war, Ben would like to prank them, right? So they're obviously buddies, right? But basically, after being introduced to Big Ben and some of the other soldiers, uh, we, we see at the end of the flashback that they're ambushed and have to fight their way out, okay? And we don't see where it goes from there at this point because Roger's interrupted by the TV and his wife's soap. I want to point out that it is daytime when he is talking to Harold outside the front yard. And then as soon as he walks in the house and closes the door and you see the stained glass window at the top of the stairs, it is nighttime outside the window and it is nighttime in his office when he starts typing. This happens several times throughout the movie and I will try to point it out, but day and night is not clear in this film. Yeah. And I don't know if it's continuity errors to mind fuck you or if he's an unreliable narrator, yeah. but we'll go to that as we go. As long as I remember <laughs> But after turning off the TV, Roger hears and sees Jimmy in the window, but he's staticky and he can turn him off with the TV remote. What the fuck? That's so weird. But I guess in the eighties, <laughs> that was kind of cool, right? Yeah, totally. He then hears another noise upstairs and goes to check it out again. And he walks up to the same closet and almost opens it. But for some reason he thinks he's crazy and he should just go back to the creepy ass mirror in the bathroom again. But apparently after fighting cavities, he's given the courage <laughs> to go back and check the closet and he opens the door and it's completely empty. He shuts the door and takes a few steps away and he hears the grandfather clock ding midnight and then opens the door again only to be attacked by a giant fucking monster. And he gets slashed and slams the door on it and eventually gets it in the closet and the door shut. And this monster is referred to as the war demon. But I want to point out that it was an 18 foot long puppet that was operated by 15 people and it looks badass. <laughs> and henceforth, I will refer to him as Charlie. Okay. We're going to hang on Charlie for a second <laughs> because <laughs> it's a nom joke. I, I know, right? First off, when you get, because this, this shot of it, you barely get to see it because it's so quick and it looks like Pumpkinhead's aborted brother. <laughs> It's got all the moving faces on it, though, like Freddy's <laughs> stomach. Yes. But like little Josh, back in the day, seeing this thing, this thing scared the shit out of me. It was full on fucking nightmare yes. fuel. And it's still pretty creepy looking. And that is one thing about this movie. It is fucking practical effects, which stand the test of time. There's some odd looking ghoul things in the movie, but yeah. you can't say they don't look realistic in an odd way. Right. Yeah. But yeah, very fucking frightening. Definitely freaked me out as a kid. Honestly, any fear of a closet that I have is, well, there's probably a couple movies it relates it to, but that's that's a winner. And <laughs> uh, the construction worker guy from The Gate, that's another one. And it seems like we had another one recently. But I mean, there's a couple of memories I have when I look at closets that still to this day on the wrong night can freak me out. But the next day we can see that Roger's like, fuck this. And he has a delivery truck come bring him several cameras, including a Betamax camera and other AV equipment. Right. And he sets up all these cameras and, you know, delays and a line to stardom and everything in front of the closet. Okay. We can see that he's in his old army uniform and he practices pulling the string to open the door, taking a picture on the Polaroid, getting all the video cameras going, running, diving and rolling down the stairs. It's some cane hotter, I guess, supervised stunts there <laughs> and oddly run out of his front door and dive on his knees in the walkway and slide on concrete like it's nothing right in front of Harold. And um, Harold sees this and he doesn't know what the fuck to think of his neighbor. No, I do want to point out that Harold is walking his dog. who's taking a shit in Roger's front yard. Oh, I don't yeah. mean like in front of the sidewalk. He's like pretty close to the front door on the inside of the hedges. Who the fuck does that? <laughs> this guy. 
But Roger heads back in the house and preps all of his lights and cameras, and he opens the door with the rope to find nothing there, because for some fucking reason that he didn't realize the stroke of midnight had something to do with it the night before. Yeah. It seemed kind of obvious to me, but yeah, I'm just the, uh, the God viewing trying to be pleased here, right? <laughs> but later that night, Roger hears that grandfather clock I was just talking about go off, and he has a eureka moment, and he runs upstairs to open the closet door only to be frightened by Harold walking up behind him with a late-night snack. <laughs> Solitude's always better with someone else around, you know? This dude really needs to look up the word solitude. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but they go downstairs to eat some Chinese food together. Ooh, I want some fucking Chinese food right now. And uh, hammer some beers. And Roger explains that his aunt thought the house was haunted, and Harold says she was Looney Tunes, and Roger asks what he thinks about him. Well, so if he thinks he's Looney Tunes. And Harold lets her know, dude, you were in war. You lost your son, got a divorce. You might have a few marbles rolling around there, but you're definitely not crazy, right? <laughs> and uh, Roger tries to tell him about the monster in the closet and shows him his wounds on his stomach. But Harold doesn't believe him, right? Yeah. Harold leaves the house and steals Roger's phone book, you know, because people used to actually have to write numbers down in a book. And... Sneaks over to his house and calls Sandy to let her know that he's worried about Roger. He's a close friend of his, and he wants her to check in on him because she think, he thinks it's some sort of PTSD thing. And she says she can't drive up because her show has to start recording so early the next day, but she'll call and check on him. But Sandy calls to check on Roger, but he's balls deep in a writing, and with this sporadic writer's block, I wouldn't stop to answer the phone either, right? And we see that he's writing about him and Ben taking point through the jungle, I guess, after that ambush. Roger appears to hit a rough spot in the book and has to take a break again. And he walks by the large Marlin hanging on the wall <laughs> and it comes to life and it's flailing and screeching. And I guess we know where the idea for Billy the Bass came from. Give me that fish. Give me that fish. <laughs> Roger goes to the workshop to get the to get a shotgun and some shells, and he's attacked by all of the farm implements. I love that word, man, after Halloween. <laughs> but uh, it's all the yard tools. I don't remember what all's in there. It's like some hedge clippers and a fucking spade and all sorts of shit. Yeah. He drops some shells on the way, but manages to make it to Billy, load the gun, and fucking blast him. I want to point out that it's nighttime while this is going on, while he's running to the workshop. You would expect it to be nighttime because Harold just left the house and it's nighttime. He's still in his army uniform. And um, Roger goes and covers the fish that he just shot with like a blanket or something, right? Because it looks freaky and it might have still been flailing. I don't remember. Dude, I was happy for that. That shit scared me when I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. And he heads back to that scary fucking bathroom mirror where nothing happens until he's attacked by the house tools again. So I guess they kind of showed up, but that was from a different door. Yeah. He slams the door to block him, runs downstairs, and we can see that it's daytime. The sun's up. We can see it through the stained glass window and Sandy's standing in front of the front door with daylight coming in behind her, right? So it's yep. really odd, the night daytime, like I said earlier. He drops the shells on the floor and she bends over to pick them up for him. And when she stands up, she's this big fucking screeching ghoul, which is funnier looking now that I remember it as a kid, but I remember it scaring the shit out of me as a kid. Well, especially since she sounds like a fucking chipmunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the voice is creepier <laughs> than the appearance. But uh, he says, fuck this and uh, blast her right out the door with the shotgun and Harold hears the shot and sees Roger walking out the door with the gun. He never saw Sandy and he thinks it's a suicide attempt. So he calls the cops over and Roger quickly hides his, his wife's body. It's like he planned this almost. He does it so quickly. <laughs> and um, 
Roger basically just sits on the porch nonchalantly like he's cleaning the gun. And it went off by accident. And one of the cops recognized him as the man that lost his son recently. And the other realized he's a famous author. And they're like, oh, we're not going to cite you anymore because you're a celebrity. It's really weird how it goes down. And uh, they come in to, to drink some coffee and use the can. Harold invites himself in because the cops try to kick him out. But he sneaks in the back door. Because yeah. I guess he's either super nosy or really worried about Rogers. Maybe somewhere in between. He's had too much solitude. Yeah. <laughs> but one of the cops is... Uh, is admiring a painting Mrs. Hooper made of a woman being chased by the farm implements, and she's like half naked and this and that. And Roger lets him know that his aunt was an artist. Yeah, I guess. But somewhere in here, while they're sitting at the table, Harold finds the shotgun shells, makes sure the cops notice it. Then they end up leaving, I guess. I guess they all think maybe it's a suicide thing. Yeah. And uh, Roger's shotgun's missing now, so he's freaking out about it. He gets the cops out of the house. And he runs up to the the room with the closet. And when he checks out the door, Sandy, ghoul Sandy anyways, was hiding behind one of the doors. And she comes up and cold cocks him with the uh, shotgun. And he manages to like get up and run away and bait her to the farm implements, which decapitate her, right? And he drags her body and head out to the backyard and tries to bury it to a fucked up soundtrack. No good, you no good, you no good. Baby, you're no <laughs> the soundtrack is so unsettling to this movie it does not fit at any point in time but he finds the hot neighbor from across the street in his pool and she tells him that she knows that he knows when to work and when to play and they should get together and play real soon right yeah while this is going on though the body's moving and trying to grab tanya's foot and he has to keep stepping on it stomping it beating it with the shovel it's kind of funny and uh, as she leaves, he gets this homicidal look on his face and dismembers the entire fucking body and buries it in pieces all over the yard. Yeah, there's a shot of all, all the little dirt mounds. I know, I know. He's seen Evil Dead, apparently, because he knows you got to fucking dismember those bodies and separate the parts. Hell yeah. But that night we see Roger clean up and he's trying to guard the holes, I guess, because he's outside of the flashlight checking the yard and... I mean, I guess he thinks it's going to come back to life, right? But he looks at the pool, gets bothered about his son again, then turns around and the neighborhood dog that we saw earlier, I, I don't think I brought it up, but it got into his trash, yeah. has the hand in its mouth and runs off with the hand, right? And he goes back in the house, I guess, to run out front or something, and Tanya shows up at the door and she's ready to play. And by that, I mean, she's about to go out on a date with another dude and she needs Roger to watch her son, Robert, who was Steve Miner's actual son, by the way. Nice. And uh, Roger is trying to blow her off till he notices that the hand is on the boy's back and, and crawling around on there. And he chases the kid into the bathroom and takes the hand off and flushes it down the toilet. First off, how did he flush that big ass fucking hand down a toilet hole? <laughs> wait, wait, there's a there's a beta here. Um, the scream out of that kid when he's pulling the hand off of his back. That shit seems oh, legit. <laughs> It does, and uh, while we're while we're at it, what woman is okay with a strange man coming out of the bathroom with her son after he screamed? That was my second point. Yes. Like she's not even phased by this at all. She's got to go play, man. She's on a one-trap run. <laughs> and uh, literally, she does. She leaves Robert with Roger. Wow, it's going to get confusing and fuck me up here in a minute. <laughs> but uh, he's trying to, uh, to write, and he's trying to watch his wife's soap opera. And uh, Robert's playing with some legit ass old He-Man toys. I don't know if you noticed or not. And ah. um, 
he decides to lay the boy down on the bench in front of the TV to let him wind down and watch TV. And uh, he goes back to writing and he goes back to the point where he and big Ben are taking point and Ben's gunned down. And this bothers Roger understandably. So he decides to take a break from writing again. And he looks up, notices that Robert is missing and Roger runs all around the house until he sees these two ghoul. I guess they're kids taking the boy and running around. Right. Yeah. And they're, creepy looking while also looking like garbage pail kids or something. <laughs> it might not be garbage pail kids. It's something from we were kids. I remember having like fucked up stickers or trading cards with creatures that look like this, or maybe it's just that time in my life. I, I relate the two. I don't well, know. I, I, I think you're blending two things together. Cause there was the garbage pail kids. And then after that, there was something called like pukes or something that was like garbage pail okay. kids to the nth degree. Okay. Yeah. It could have been that, or like I said, it could have just been, I remember there being weird cards and this movie at the same time. Who knows? <laughs> All the cool shit we can't have anymore. But long story short, Roger ends up saving the kid from the ghouls, right? As they try to yank him up a chimney. And uh, he gives him a bath, which is not odd to the mom either, I guess. Maybe she didn't know, but <laughs> after Tanya gets her son, Roger suits back up into his army uniform. And invites Harold over for beer in a movie, which Harold's pumped, right? And he comes over and he lets him know that he tricked him into coming over and there's not a movie. And that there wasn't really a monster in his closet, but it was more like a Cujo-sized raccoon, right? <laughs> and it goes up in the attic or something through a hole or some fucking ridiculous bullshit. And he needs his help to catch it, okay? So he's like, yeah, I'll help you. I'll help you. And he gears Harold up with like a helmet and some goggles and hands him the harpoon gun. After making sure that he's used one before. Yeah, sure. Every day. What is it? But Roger opens the door at the stroke of midnight and he's attacked by the monster. And Harold actually manages to shoot it with the harpoon after shitting his pants, but <laughs> drops the fishing line while it catches Roger's foot and drags him into the closet and well into not. Why couldn't it have been fillery? Oh, but Roger finds Ben injured on the ground uh, and, and bleeding out from where we left him in the story. So even though he's been yanked into the closet by the by Charlie, he uh, is right to the memory he left off at. Right. Yeah. And Ben wants him to put him out of his misery. He wants him to just fucking stab him and kill him there. And he can't do it. He goes for help to get the medic. And the enemy soldiers come and take Ben hostage. And he's screaming that he's going to get Roger for this. Right. Foreshadowing. <laughs> Ben's going to be, I have a reason to be pissed. <laughs> <laughs> but Roger gets away from, uh, well, the Charlie in the jungle, right? And, <laughs> and he dives through the closet back into the room where Harold is passed out with fucking beer cans everywhere, a <laughs> bottle of Jack in one hand, a fire poker in the other. And there's like comic books laying around. So <laughs> I don't know how long he's been there and it's daytime. I want to point that out. It is bright as fuck. There are no blinds in this room. Nope. And Roger carries Harold over to his house and puts him in his bed where it's now nighttime in his bedroom. Does he put him in his bed or does he put him on a couch? It might've been his couch, but he, he takes him home. He's, he's very kind to the man. <laughs> Either way, he lays him down in front of a fucking window where it's nighttime. <laughs> so we just went from day to night in like 30 seconds. <laughs> and, uh, Roger decides he should go to sleep now because apparently it's nighttime. <laughs> I mean, it really doesn't make any sense. It is broad daylight when he jumps out of the closet and he immediately takes Harold home. No. However, he decides not to go to sleep again. And I want to point out, I don't know if he's actually fucking slept yet. I know, right? 
It's only been a few days. I mean, that kind of goes into some of my theories here. But uh, he says, fuck it, and goes and checks out his aunt's painting in the workshop, and he removes the rag this time. And we can see that it was covering up a bathroom mirror over the bathroom sink, the creepy mirror. And Jimmy, his son, is in the glass beating on it and screaming for help, right, in the, in the mirror's reflection. So at this point, we dive into the third act of the film, and Roger goes to the murder mirror and does the reflection fake out one last time. And so he finally says, fuck it, and breaks the mirror out. And he sees that the mirror goes into the abyss. He's then attacked by what looks like a xenomorph tail and some giant <laughs> ghoulies hands from the movie Ghoulies yes. from the darkness. And so he fends them off with like a straight razor. And he hears Jimmy crying for help. And he heads into the fucking hole with some rope, a flashlight, and a shotgun. Yeah. Yeah, it makes right? sense. He's right? a brave dude. He's going in to get a son. <laughs> He's going into the further. Exactly. We see nothing. He is basically, you can see a giant black room and a little bathroom mirror up high and he's hanging low. Right. And, and it's just dark and there's nothing there until this crazy ass skeleton bat thing that looks like Jerry from Fright Night when he burns up swoops <laughs> in and takes the gun from him and lever fans it at him, shooting the rope and cutting it, cause him to fall into water. <laughs> no, that thing it feels like you're in a different movie at this point. And that thing's it. It's not aged great, but it's still creepy as shit. And the way it treats him like a little bitch is hilarious. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a practical prop, which is what makes it partially hold up. Well, but stop motion always looks weird Yep. over time, you know, but anyways, Roger swims out of the water into the jungle. Cause he fell in like a pool of water in the abyss. Right. Yeah. And he swims through it. Pops out Nam and finds Jimmy locked in a cage where he's been captured by zombie Big Ben. And he frees Jimmy and they jump into the jungle water, swim through it, pop out at the swimming pool at his aunt's house. Because apparently all the shit's fucking connected. It might as well be a goddamn grandfather clock to Narnia or Philly or whatever the fuck. But <laughs> they make it into the house and it seems like they're safe until they open the front door and Ben pops up and he's there for revenge. You're pissing me off, Roger. Roger gets Jimmy, runs off, and tells him to go hide, and he lures Ben through the house and to the back door, which apparently is now on the edge of a mountain overlooking a far drop off to some jagged rocks, and I guess the ocean? New Zealand. Oh, okay. Could be. <laughs> it's really cool how the house is like catty corner on the corner of this mountain. It's a neat shot. I like it. Yeah. And uh, Roger, I think he uses his belt, right? Throws it up and latches it on Ben and... Yanks him down and drops into the rocks, right? Like, assuming he's dead, because we see him fall and hit the ground. And uh, he climbs back up in the house. He can hear Jimmy upstairs, and he goes up, only to find that the mirror is now closed shut. And Ben pops up, I think, behind him with Jimmy. And Roger figures out that Ben cannot actually hurt him, because I think he slashes a knife or something at him, and it, like, goes through his hand, right? Yeah, something. And, um... He figures out that Ben's just trying to trick him and he's not afraid of him anymore. It's kind of like Nightmare on Elm Street, just a little bit. Yeah, it, no, it's exactly like Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> <laughs> and Roger takes Jimmy from Ben, crams a grenade into his torso, blowing him up at, and killing him as he walks away, right? Cool dudes don't look at explosions. <laughs> and uh, basically, the house was just trying to trick him into killing himself like it did his aunt, right? She said, don't let it trick you like it tricked me, blah, blah, blah. Exactly. And from outside the house, we can see that the upstairs is definitely on fire. And Harold comes out running to see what's going on. And Sandy pulls up in a taxi to see Roger come out with their son. The end. 
The question I really have, though, <laughs> is did any of that shit actually happen? Okay, two two quick things. So, you know, I said it was years before I saw the end of the movie. After, yeah. After the cliff thing, when he goes walking up the stairs, when he gets to the landing, that's when it would cut over to whatever it got recorded over. Ah, okay, that's how okay. close to the end I made it for so many years. But no, that's what I thought watching it as an adult. Like, is this really is this really his book? Is this really just him going nuts? You know, what did they even care? (laughs) Maybe it was supposed to be left up to the viewer to figure this out. I'm assuming it would have been less off putting if it would have been the original non comedy version of the script. Right. Like you could play it more as, um, uh, you know, suffering from PTSD or some other mental illness, or maybe even just like you said, writing the book or something. And then, the sequels happen, which I'm going to briefly go over in a minute, but there's three sequels. There's four house movies. Only the fourth one has anything fucking to do with the first one. <laughs> and even then it's loose. And that confirms the ghost theory at that point, but they weren't yeah. planning on making a fucking sequel when they made this movie. Hell no. I mean, this was supposed to be a segment in an anthology film. Yeah. So I don't know. In a lot of ways, I feel like it didn't happen. Like, did he actually shoot his wife because she came to check on him the next day instead of filming her soap opera? And she wasn't out front in the cab. Like, why is it not weird that he showed up with the son that's been missing for God knows how long? The house is on fire. He might have been fucking crazy, dude. Or it could have been haunted. I don't know. Yeah, he could have been sucked into the house and all that shit that happens after that is all all what's going on to him and none of it's real. Yeah. The sequels, I don't know. Josh and I almost did the house franchise because we thought there were only two of them at the time. (laughs) And house two is straight up a horror comedy. And it is a standalone film that the only thing even moderately related is that there's a haunted house in it. And it's funny, right? It was made a year later and uh, it's a fun movie. We're going to have to do that on a shit that's left over episode probably because Apparently house three is a slasher flick that was very serious and dark and so different that in the United States, they changed the name of the movie from house three to the horror show. Yeah. Right. It's still house three in other countries. And then house four went straight to video and it does have Roger in it. And it's an actual legitimate sequel to this, which I haven't seen. I've only seen house two. I will probably watch the other two sequels at some point as well. But like I said, Love this movie as a child. I feel like this is one of those developing movies to make me a horror fan. And I still like it, but I see it through completely different eyes now that I realize that it's a horror comedy. And and like I said, I saw it really young. So it, it came out when we were three, right? I mean, I didn't yeah. see it then. I was probably five or six first time I saw it. And I probably saw it up to 13-ish, somewhere in there. But I remember as, as a young child, this movie scared the fuck out of me. And it has really good <laughs> practical effects. Anybody who likes the horror genre, haunted house movies, horror comedies, any of that, go fucking watch the movie if you haven't seen it. It's a it's a cult classic. Yeah, totally. It's rough around the edges, but if it's one of those that if you let it take you for the ride, it's a fun ride. And that closet monster, Charlie, as you refer to him, <laughs> was fucking awesome. Like the especially look up like the behind the scenes and still photos and shit of how huge and detailed this thing really fucking was. Yeah, I'm going to have to borrow that disc from me just so I can see that part. But we went from uh, a movie from our early childhood, and I guess we're going to go into a, a remake from our early adulthood when Josh covers 2001's 13 Ghosts. So the other side of the coin here in the original uh, William Castle remake idea, which I'm just going to go ahead and preface this. I like House on Haunted Hill more than this movie. 
Oh, I'm the exact opposite. I get that a lot. <laughs> but uh, this one was directed by Steve Beck, who also did Ghost Ship, if you want to talk about good movies. But for a long time before that, he was an effects guy at ILM. Yep. Which is going to come up later in this movie. But uh, it was written by Neil Marshall Stevens, who's like, oh, what's the producer's name over at uh, Full Moon? Anyways, he's like a go-to fucking Full Moon Pictures director. Okay. Which kind of shows, but the production of this movie, hands were kind of tied just from how they did it. But uh, we've got Tony Shalhoub as Arthur, who I always recognize from Monk or fucking Men in Black. And that's it. I know he's been in a metric <laughs> fuck ton of other stuff. M. Beth Davids as Kalina, who was Sheila in fucking Army of Darkness. I know it was driving me crazy when I was watching this movie for the podcast. I'm like, what do I know her from? And it, it was Sheila as Army of Darkness. And my kids recently got into the Matilda movie from 96. Uh-huh. She's in that. Yeah, she's the she's the teacher Miss Honey on that. So, oh, okay. But when my kids were watching Miss Honey like uh, several months ago, I was like, "What do I know her from?" And it's because she's Sheila. So she's fucking Sheila, man. When it got to the the point of the movie where I was like, "I have to look her up," and I looked her up, and I'm like, "I feel like an idiot." Then I'm watching the movie <laughs> in the commentary, and the exact same scene where I'd had enough and looked her up is when uh, Howard Berger is like, "Oh, and you know, she was Sheila in Army of Darkness, so you know, we still got that tie in." And I'm like, "Hey, that's right where I thought of it." But anyways, you can jump all that if you want to. <laughs> We've got Matthew Lillard as Dennis, who's been in a couple of movies. He was in, he was in that Scream movie. What's that? I think he was the voice of Shaggy on a couple of Scooby Doo. And he should have remained the voice of Shaggy. He should have. that. And, uh, of course, SLC Punk. I mean, and Serial yeah, yeah. Mom, which yeah, oh yeah. I never I watched that, that back in the day. And the wife made me watch it. And I'm like, dude, I got to, like, sit down and pay attention to this movie because this movie's funny as shit. Yeah, that's one of my saw, like, current, like, in the, in the times when it came out. <laughs> Shannon Elizabeth as uh, Kathy. Everyone remembers her from Jack Frost, right? Okay, only me. American um, Pie is the go-to <laughs> for me on that one. Yeah, and a bunch of other stuff. And uh, Raw Digga as Maggie, who she's the nanny, and I'm bringing this up because this was the only film to date that she's done. She's a DJ. Yeah, she's a DJ. Um, ended up uh, rolling with Buster Rhymes for a long time. Fucking Freddy. Trick or treat, motherfucker. <laughs> And then, you know, we got to have that one big star that you would think this was beneath them, just like House on Haunted Hill. So this time around, they got F. Murray Abraham as <laughs> yeah, Cyrus. <laughs> and special effects, practical effects, at least by K&B. Duh. The effects in this movie are, are fucking phenomenal. They really do stick out to me. And we'll, we'll get to them as we go. But yeah. I, just, I really like the way the ghosts look. Uh, every, this movie's really fucking cool. <laughs> there's, a lot, there's a lot there. Yeah, there's a lot of coolness in this. Of course, uh, I went to a decent amount of detail on the whole Dark Castle thing on the last episode. Um, there was just was a streamed watch party of this movie on June 13th. I saw that. They brought back some of the the they brought back the uh, the composer and like a few people and one of the actors and actually a couple of the actors. There was some neat information that was discussed in that that I hadn't found anywhere else that's in here. So, yay, new news. No idea if it's accurate, but they said it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember seeing that posted. And it was after you had chose this as your film, like as one of your films coming up. I was like, it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. A couple things on, on before we get into this, they mostly used one floor 
was the whole set. They built basically a story and a half and made it to where they could move all the walls. So the first floor, the basement, everything, it's the same set over and over again. Okay. They used real tempered glass because that was the only thing they could safely use. They did not etch all the spells onto it. It's all applied decals, which I was like, oh, why didn't I think of that? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) All the ghosts had a full backstory written for them before they were turned over to K&B. So that's why there's actually depth to the characters. And it's actually kind of a loss because they don't really go into it in the movie. But there's a whole lot going on there, which uh, there's a whole things you could look upon it. I won't drag everything down with that. They made the whole crew dress in black as part of their attempt to avoid reflections. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, it is amazing to me of how much of this movie that they said they shot and they did not have to go back in post and remove reflections, that they just figured it out and said, this is how we have to shoot it. Roll. (laughs) (laughs) One neat thing is Ken Kerzinger was the stunt coordinator. You know, the stunt coordinator from Cabin in the Woods. And uh, oh, yeah, he was uh, Jason in Freddy vs. Jason. I was about to say, was he not Jason? Because that's like a, that was a big thing because it wasn't Kane. (laughs) Exactly. I remember somebody named Josh bitching about that on a podcast. At any rate. So, so long ago. (laughs) So we opened in this junkyard and see this dog pissing fire. Wrong movie. Hang on. So we open in this junkyard. (laughs) We see this crew deploying equipment like fucking speakers and computers and shit. We see Dennis and Cyrus get out of a truck. And Dennis already wants to leave. Like he's freaking out and he's having like these weird ah moments that we don't know what's going on yet, but something's like mentally affecting him. And uh, we're in the dark. There's just, we're thrown in the middle of it. And Cyrus is like, tell me where he's hiding. Like it's, you have no idea what's going on. It's so jarring. And I don't like the opening. I like this opening scene for the most part. There's some cool shit that happens here, but yeah, this part's a little off putting. It's when the shit hits the fan that it's a cool opening. (laughs) Yeah. So Dennis touches the ground and he gets this psychic blast, which he'll get throughout the movie and he points and they bring out this cube. Cause there's like a whole crew, like this whole team. And like, they got these clear uh, jackets on, like they're the cleanup crews from men in black. and shit. (laughs) Honestly, it makes me think of the opening scene from Jurassic park. That too. (laughs) It really does. Every time. And uh, so we see this cube thing and the crew brings two unwelcome guests to Cyrus and it's two like people that shouldn't be there. And it's Kalina and Damon. And Kalina goes on this rant about how Cyrus can't do this. These are people. And so they're they're the Greenpeace people, which that joke gets made. (laughs) (laughs) And Damon just quickly says that Cyrus will never pull this off because he doesn't have the right spells and he'll need the 13th ghost. Like all this is just being thrown at you. So so be keeping up with it. So they get drug off and Dennis is now extra pissed because he's like, yo, 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 I was contracted for 12. What's this about this 13th ghost? And Cyrus is like, yes, one more, just one more. <laughs> but it wasn't in the scope of work though. You really got to pay attention. <laughs> yeah. No to these cha- legal documents. No change orders in this contract. What the fuck? <laughs> and Cyrus releases the bait. And this is cool because it's this giant fucking truck that's just spraying blood everywhere. But it's introduced in that stupid, juddery, slow-mo, jump cut, overdramatic thing that ruins it for me. I will say, though, that's the point where the opening scene gets cool, though, when the blood starts getting sprayed out. Yes. And the crew starts playing this this incantation over the speakers they had set up, and it's all Condar. No. Um, but it's playing this weird fucking Latin <laughs> sound and shit. And... uh the crew all of a sudden just starts getting picked off one by one and like getting like 
looks like eaten by the trunks of cars and like cars flying through the air at him and stuff. And you don't see stuff at first, but you see a couple of flashes from Dennis's point of view of that. There's this ghost and it's, we'll later find out the juggernaut, but this big motherfucker that's actually killing everybody like with great hostility and at a surprising rate of speed. I'm a goddamn juggernaut, bitch. And what ends up happening is one of the crew is getting chased by him and the guy runs into this glass cube thing and the juggernaut follows him in there and just bashes his ass around into it and then the doors close with the juggernaut in there. We got this kind of like overhead shot that pulls away from the scene and we hear Kalina just wigging out because we see that Damon was one of the many victims. But as the camera pulls away, we also see that Cyrus is dead with this huge hunk of metal stuck through his throat. So we cut to the opening credits and this really happy family. And it's like overly cheesy brother and sister playing in the backyard while dad looks out the window and we're hearing audio that continues on from there into other things as the camera slowly pans around the room. And what we learn, if you're listening, is that they go from the happy family to, oh, my God, there's a house fire to mom is still in the house, then mom flatlining in the hospital and then a funeral. And while you're hearing the story go, the room goes from nice and clean to the smoke damage and then packed boxes and stuff like that as it comes all the way back around to dad, Arthur. Just as Kathy opens the door to get him and he comes out through the door and we realize a lot of time or some time has passed and they're in this crummy apartment and it's the dad, the two kids and the nanny. And I like the way that they did that with uh, at least telling all that backstory. Yeah. Just the audio of it with the, oh, you're my big sister type shit was just a little too cheesy. Yeah. And, and the little kid, like watching the movie, he's he's little El Jefe to me. <laughs> you know Do you know? I mean? If they use the same company for the opening credits that they did on the on the house on Haunted Hill, I do not know. Because kind of, I remember you saying that like that's what they specialized in was opening credits, but it's really cool in both movies. So yeah, this is one of the first movies I can recall seeing where the the cards and the the names and shit are like set into the scene, like on the shelf properly, yeah, and gold and stuff like that. And you get a lot of exposition done like like that, you know, just yeah, while you're getting title cards, scary fast. So in the kitchen, that's where we're introduced to the death-obsessed Bobby with his little tape recorder. Oh, my God. Not a talk boy, thank God. And uh, the nanny, which is Maggie. And if you pay attention, this is all while the original 13 Ghosts is playing on the TV in the background. I didn't realize that was the original 13 Ghosts in the background. Yep. That's pretty cool. The Ouija board scene. And all of a sudden, we just see this shot of this guy walking down the hall and knocking on the apartment door. And it's this lawyer. And he reveals that the Uncle Cyrus has left Arthur the key to their new house and that the house is his life's work. And this is all played from a video on the laptop, like trying to make it cool and techie. Because what is this, like 2002, 2003? Is it even 2001? I think it was 2001, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's like, look, guys, computers with video and shit. Anyways, it's just, it's, it's clunky, man. There's some stuff in this movie that is just clunky and I won't. Uh, I won't give it a pass on it. They set up the story really fast, right? Like, well, once, yeah. once you get there. Yeah, we got to get them to the house. Yeah, once you get them to the house, I, I think it goes smooth. Yeah, because, and I think it's Kathy's ass. It's like, we have an uncle. You know, we had a rich uncle. And it's like, well, he squandered the family fortune. It's like, we're rich. And it's like, I told you, he squandered it all. <laughs> <laughs> I do like that. That's very Tony Shalhoub of him. Yeah, but... W- The whole point is let's get them to the house. So they head off to the house while we cut to see what Kalina is up to. And she's packing up for a girl's night out. Normal stuff. Explosives, spell book, 
oh, and a recording of drawing spells instead of containment spells, if you read the labels on the fucking reels. (laughs) (laughs) So something's up with her, obviously. I didn't even catch that. (laughs) I didn't catch it till the second watch. Um, I'm just thinking Condor (laughs) every time I see the fucking reels. But at the house, which I don't remember if it's this shot when they're pulling up and see the house or if it's a shot later on from outside, there's one heavy CGI shot where there was no house there at all. And it was something okay. like 22 months of visual effects for something that's on screen for four seconds. Jesus. <laughs> Take that, Star Wars. <laughs> but, anyways. Yeah, they could have probably done it in 15 minutes. <laughs> no, right? Steve Beck was used to working with quality. <laughs> But they see this guy snooping around the house when they pull up and it's Dennis and he's posing as a tech from the power company. It's a scene straight out of hackers, man. <laughs> I know. It's like, man, this house is like taking out 40 blocks, man. I need to get in there. <laughs> and a lawyer dude doesn't want to let him in, but Arthur's cool with it. He puts the key in the door. And as the door lock does this funky mechanical thing, we see a shot inside of something turning on and we see something spinning in the floor and we see this pendulum up on this thing that's markers for things that we will continue to learn what they are, start swinging just far enough to let us know that it's got a beginning and an ending, we shall say. And we've just started. And once they're inside, Dennis makes his way down to the basement saying that he's looking for the breaker box. And Arthur goes uh, to sign the papers with the lawyer because the lawyer's like, hey, we got some legal shit to do. And of course the kids are told to stay put. And of course they're kids. They fucking explore. Mm Mm-hmm. And... See, anybody who hasn't seen this movie, all the walls are glass. All of them. There are no solid walls in here whatsoever. There's some, you know, frosted and cubes and stuff like around the bathrooms and shit that we'll see. But you can see everywhere in here. And there's incantations and spells written everywhere on all this glass. I would not think this is a cool house to live in like the family does. No. Like they're all pumped. I've been like, fuck this. Let's move. Sell it. I'm going to get drunk and walk into shit. And number two, as soon as I find out that that shit's in Latin, mm -mm. I'm drawing a line in the fucking sand here. Do not read the Latin. So we see Dennis down in the basement and he starts having his weird psychic burst flash things. And he realizes that the basement is totally filled with containment cubes. So Dennis rushes to Arthur and reveals the truth about Cyrus. I used to hunt ghosts with your uncle Cyrus. Goats? Ghosts! Ghosts, goddammit! Listen to me! And meanwhile, we see that Kathy has picked out a room that, you know, like, oh, check out this bed, yada, yada, yada. So she settles in and Bobby and Maggie have run off into another room where there's a bunch of old toys. And, you know, Bobby's like, this must be my room. And we see a pair of these glasses that the glasses were kind of shown in the opening, but not explained at all, um, if I remember correctly. So after the whole we used to hunt ghosts. Your uncle owed me a shitload of money, blah, 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 yada, yada. The lawyer dude's like, oh, I was warned about him, blah, 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 blah. And he goes storming off. Actually, I'm, I'm cutting all that way too short. Uh, Dennis ends up having his crazy flashes and like is almost seizing out. And then Arthur ends up touching him and he sees what happened to the wife and everything. And he's like laying on the yeah. floor and doing the Matthew Lillard drool and everything. And then when they co- kind of come to, it's like, what happened to the lawyer? So the lawyer is walking around downstairs puts on the fucking glasses and he's seeing the ghosts in the cubes and just talking shit to him like a complete asshole. Nice dance. 
But he's making his way to this main control room where the pendulum thing was. And he grabs this bag of what we find out is cash quickly after off the floor. But when he picks it up, it's on this pedal. And so the pedal lifts up and like stage two of the contraption kicks in. And we see a wider shot of all these big pull handles with different runes on them. And one of them pulls, triggering the release of the first ghost, the angry princess. Guess which one she is. So almost immediately, Lawyer is all happy with his bag of cash and he's walking down the hallway and there she is all naked with a knife. I do want to point out, I always thought that her boobs were makeup. According to Howard Berger, they are not. Oh, that is her body full frontal. The only thing she's ever done. And it's like, is this really enough for this to work? I don't know about all this. And then somebody's like one more slash over the nipple. (laughs) It's like, all right, there it is. We got a ghost. (laughs) Jesus, she's creepy looking while being a a naked woman. She's pretty fucking disgustingly creepy. Yes. So she's coming down the hall at him and uh, with a knife and he's like, oh, I was just playing around with what I said back then. And you're like, oh, man, she's going to fucking stab him. He's going to get it. And all of a sudden, the deck of the Enterprise fucking doors slam together right (laughs) on either side of this guy. And it's really cool because he just stands there for a second and his glasses are obviously cut and fall off. His tie falls off like this and that one shot in Resident Evil are like so awesome. And the front half of his body slides down the glass, revealing that he's been chopped in half by all this glass. And that was all K and B. And then they digitally put dude's face on it. It was all all a puppet. The brain looks badass and shit when it's sliding down. I really like it. Yeah. So we're kind of following the angry princess around now. She quickly goes to the bathroom where Kathy was. And this part's really cool because we're seeing like what Kathy sees going on where she's like washing her face and like, my God, this house is freaking sweet. But it's intercut with the whole whole room covered in blood and I'm sorry scrawled in blood all the all across the floor and as she goes over to the fucking bathtub it's intercut between the nice clean bathtub and the angry princess where she obviously killed herself it's just so awesome because it's like you see the real world versus the ghost dimension or whatever the fuck you want to <laughs> call it and honestly I think that's one of the cooler shots in the movie yes and it's it's great tension and just as the angry princess is about to get her ass Pops bangs on the door, distracts her, and says, hey, you know, come this way, whatever. And it's like, ah, almost. I do think it's interesting. She's looking at Kathy like she's freaked out that she's there and, like, messing with her bathtub. But she really does not look hostile towards her. No. Most of the ghosts do not seem very hostile except for a couple of them. Yeah. Unless you were responsible for them being captured in some way, then you're fucking fucked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uppercase. So there's some weird cuts in this movie, and this is going to be one of them where it's like, okay, we finished one child. What's going on with Bobby? So we see Bobby, and he's on his little scooter that dad tripped over earlier on in the movie and his little recorder thing. And he hears this voice calling him downstairs, and it so sounds like just use the same shit we use in House on Haunted Hill. It so (laughs) sounds like it. And there's this other voice mixed in with it, which I obviously caught what it was, but in reading and watching some other things, people are like, oh, that's his mom, but you don't know that yet. Bullshit. It's the same voice from the opening. (laughs) Especially, she's talking like a mom. Don't come down here, Bobby. Like, anyways. So he goes down there anyways. (laughs) (laughs) And this is all intercut with the, the countdown, basically, of of the house with the lock thing going of more and more markers being hit and more and more doors opening. So we know other ghosts are being released. I totally love something out. So the pedal, when the lawyer lifts up the money bag, the other thing that the machine does is it puts the house in lockdown, just like house on haunted <laughs> <Yeah>. hill. <laughs> 
That was important. <laughs> That's very important. So after we see Bobby has gone into the, the depths of the house, we cut back to Arthur and Dennis and Arthur's like noticing that all the shutters have shut and everything. And he's trying to break the, the glass doors in, in the foyer open with a chair and shit. And Pritchett's just sitting there in a chair like, oh, you can't do it. The house won't let you. And yeah, I said Pritchett on purpose because in that one scene, Dennis sitting there in the chair, Matthew Lillard, it's just like Pritchett's character in House on Haunted Hill. I'm sorry, William Castle, but there's a lot where it and it their remakes so maybe it's their fault but there's a lot that feels like okay we need the house to go into lockdown we need the basement to be the creepy area <laughs> so they kind of come to the realization that they're down one child and that's bobby so they need to find him so they start off as a group and they go looking for bobby and dennis starts to explain that you know the writing on the glass is containment spells and explains the glasses and he gives a pair to maggie and, you know, use these, you'll be able to see the spirits. And like, what the fuck are you talking about? Because it's not really totally divulged the cubes and everything what's going on in the basement yet. And they don't think he's fucking crazy anyway. Yes, very crazy and just there for his fucking money. A shitload of money. <laughs> <laughs> so while they're looking, we cut back to Bobby. And Bobby has a run in with uh, the bound woman. She's the hung girl. And uh, he's like runs into her like, oh, my God. And then turns around the other direction, sees the torso. And the torso is really neat because uh, it just looks like a torso, you know, <laughs> you know, no legs, no head. And, you know, it must be CGI, right? No. This is a uh, a Dexter victim, clearly, yes. of a plastic wrap. Yes, yes, yes. And what they did is they got a double amputee and put a bag over his head and had him do the scene going down the hallway and then remove the bag over his head and post and then CGI'd in the stump neck. Okay. That looked really smooth. I thought it was just a puppet. Yeah. <laughs> or all CGI. But Bobby continues to run around freaked out, and he runs right face first into one of the glass walls and gets knocked the fuck out. Clearly, they use Windex in that home. Yes. <laughs> We're not supported in any way by Windex, but if you want to, call us. <laughs> Streak free. Um, <laughs> Bobby. <laughs> knocks those birds the fuck out, man. Why not kids? <laughs> but Bobby wakes back up. And he puts on the glasses and he sees his mom and she's got like the IV bag. And the IV bag is supposed to tell you something. I think this is dumb. But anyways, she's what? The, she's the fourth ghost, you know, IV. No, that's just a coincidence. That's some stupid Internet shit. No, it's in the script. Oh, yeah. Oh, dude, there's worse shit that was cut in the writing. Oh, anyways. Yeah. Dumb. So do we blame the writer or the director for this one? Uh, we blame the writer. Okay. <laughs> in, my, in my opinion. <laughs> so he sees mom and she's got like the burn makeup on one side. And uh, then he sees Cyrus and he runs off ditching the glasses. Like he literally runs away screaming and the glasses dramatically fall to the ground and shit. So we know Cyrus's ghost is in there. Ghost. Um. Anyways. <laughs> in the Scooby-Doo kind of way, right? <laughs> yes. Speaking of Scooby-Doo, back to the group. <laughs> and they're still wandering around, and uh, they get close to the basement. And uh, Arthur goes to head down there. What did I just say? Did I just say there's a petting zoo downstairs? No. There are ghosts downstairs, Arthur. So, of course, there has to be some bribery involved. And uh, Arthur says, you know, whatever, whatever you're owed, I'll pay you plus yada, yada, yada. Take us downstairs. So they go downstairs. And since Dennis knows what's going on and it's a horror movie and everybody wants to remain safe, they split up to cover more ground. Exactly. <laughs> Poor Maggie gets left with the guy that fucking creepy rapist possibly. <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> and as they split, Dennis starts noticing that some of the doors of the cubes are open. And he's like, oh, shit, these were closed when I was down here earlier. And she's like, what are you talking about? And, and, uh, and he's like, look look through the glasses. And uh, as she puts on the glasses, because I think they, they run into the hammer, the guy that's got all the the railroad spikes in him, and he's got a hammer made into his hand. He's the only ghost I don't like. Oh, really? I want to be honest. Well, the other ones all look like they had some tragic and fucked up life and death. And then it lines up with their their Zodiac, their black Zodiac sign. I was going to bring that up when you got there. Yeah. But I don't know. His is just weird that he's got like a hammer arm and shit like that, you know? Yeah. Well, it's kind of when they tell the backstory on him, it's like they kind of just totally ripped off the Candyman story. And instead of giving him a hook, they gave him a hammer. Because it really is, he he was basically lynched and then staked to death. Oh, is that like some behind the scenes shit? Yeah. Because when they go over, I really did want to save this. So I'll just do it for him. I really like when they go over the Black Zodiac book. And it, it's basically, they didn't necessarily need these specific ghosts. They needed ghosts that fit a certain like subgenre of ghost, right? Yeah. And he's the blacksmith or whatever, right? And if you look at the book, it was just a blacksmith. And, and I don't know, it's just kind of. Yeah, yeah. He's just the only one that like doesn't look like a human that died a terrible death. Yeah, he's a little too far out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He looks like a fucking something from Hellraiser. <laughs> True. Anyways, end rants. <laughs> but uh, as they walk away, Dennis flips off the ghosts, and he has another <laughs> friggin' psychic flash vision thing, and he sees his own death of his ass being folded in half around a fucking wall. Um, what's that word? Foreshadowing. But uh, as they go around the corner, he sees another cube open and he's, and he's reading the name next to it. And he's like, or looking at the room next to it, whichever it is. And he's like, oh, this the, Houston, we have a problem. Does he actually say that? No, but he's like, this is bad. This is really bad. It would have fit. This is the jackal. And so she's like, Maggie's like, what's the jackal? And he's like, jackal's like the Charlie Manson of these ghosts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is weird because Charlie Manson was just a shit talker that was crazy and talked to other people into doing fucked up shit. I know, right? But Anyways. still, it's supposed to let us know the Jackal's the one to be afraid of. And the Jackal's pretty fucking crazy. Like, it, it, the Jackal's mm-hmm, the most mm-hmm. most fun, to me, probably the most fun out of them. And it's the one we get to see almost the most of as far as interacting with them. Her and the princess. Yeah. Meanwhile, because remember, they're split up. We've got Arthur and Kathy. And they come around this corner and they find Bobby's scooter. And the recorder. And Kathy almost immediately gets attacked by the jackal. That's why we had that set up for it. But the way they did this down this hallway is another thing like the bathroom thing. I really love it because we're seeing the jackal in some shots, but Arthur's not seeing it. He's just seeing his daughter flying down the hallway. And then there's the cuts to the reverse of her being ripped to shreds and shit. And it's really, really cool. Really dramatic. It's very Nightmare on Elm Street, really, if you think about it. Yes. Like Rod watching Tina get cut up and slung around and yada, yada, yada. Yeah, but they admitted to doing the slashes with CG in this one. They didn't do that nightmare. Ah. <laughs> we also have a good, you know, close to 20 year difference here. Yeah. yeah. But <laughs> just as we're like, oh, my God, she's fucked. All of a sudden, Kalina shows up to save the day with a road flare because ghosts are afraid of road flares. Now, that's not what scares off the jackal, more of the backstory thing and the jackal and fire. There's this whole thing that was supposed to explain a lot of the things with the ghost that's never mentioned in the movie. I will say when Cyrus makes fun of her in the opening scene in the junkyard, he's like, do you have your spell book, your sage? And he says something about her white flares. Yeah, white phosphorus flares. Yeah, like they specifically, you know, I I took they specifically scared ghost off. So Yeah, well. 
the supposedly with the backstory, it was only supposed to be used against uh, the jackal. And that's why they played it up so big that the jackal is the one we got to be afraid of, which is the red herring because it's the juggernaut they really need to be afraid of. But it's there's there was so much potential that they could have dug deeper into that I think could have made it cooler because the ghosts are like, look at what KMB had to do. You got to do 13 unique ghosts and they took the time right. to write backstories for all of them. They, they could have made them more prominent characters. So they get rescued by Kalina and as they take off, Kathy just straight up disappears. And this is while uh, Kalina is, she starts trying to explain what the house really is and the ghosts and the black Zodiac, but she doesn't really get time to go into it. And Kathy literally just no longer there, just like the disappearance in fucking house on haunted hill. Really? That is one of the poorly written scenes to me because you find out later she's taken by Cyrus and there's no reason why Cyrus should have been able to just fucking sneak in there and take her. Anyways, agreed. But had they done this the way they wanted to, it, they could have gotten a pass on it. But we'll get to that. OK. Now, something that I don't think was made very clear in the movie, part of why when they're commenting, it's like it should have just been down this hallway or Bobby so randomly running into one of those glass walls. You know how the movie keeps cutting back to the outside and all the shutters closing again? And it's like, damn, this yeah. lockdown's taken like 45 minutes. That's supposed to be the house rearranging itself each time we see it. I assume the glass was like readjusting itself and moving the rooms around like some weird cube. I, I kind of got that out of it because you see gears moving and I, I swear you see some of the panes moving around just randomly intercut through scenes. Yeah, I don't I don't think they did it enough. And they said what they wanted to do is they said we really wanted to have like massive shots of each room stacked on top of each other, moving in and out and beside each other. And I'm sitting there listening to this on the commentary. And while I'm taking a breath in to bring up Cabin in the Woods and somebody is like, and they did it in Cabin in the Woods. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. So now we've got Kalina there and she even says, yo, he's like, how'd you get in here? And she's like, I, I managed to squeeze my way in one of the times the house shifted. And that's about the time in the movie where it's like, oh, that's what's going on for me at least. So back to Dennis and Dennis has a run in with the torn prince. Cause th this really is, we just keep cutting back and forth to where are the different groups in the house re and revealing more ghosts. And the torn prince is the like uh greaser high school kid. Yeah, with a bat, with a Louis Slugger. Yes. And uh, there's a real quick run-in that's not much goes on, and he escapes as a door opens. And, you know, okay, whatever. So, meanwhile, back to Kalina and Arthur. Kalina's like, we need to get up to the, we need to get to the library. And, like, in her book and shit, she has the, the map of the house. And she's like, we got to go here. And, well, how are we going to get there? And it's like, we're going to go up. And there's a hole they can go through and climb up some, some rigging and shit for the doors and panels and shit. And as they climb up, we see the hammer get released. And the group gets up there and he doesn't get to him in time. It's another one of those like, oh, almost like not a big deal. But uh, they make it up and they're almost at the library. And then Arthur is attacked by the jackal, which, again, the jackal is just so neat because it's 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 like a like a pissed off cat <laughs> just yeah. with the crazy claw and shit. It's it's intense when the jackal attacks to me with the old Tommy cage around the head so that it can't bite somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But they do make it to the library. So here's where they're safe, at least for now. And Kalina explains the, this is when she actually explains the, uh, the black Zodiac. She started talking about the, the 13 ghosts. Well, the 12 ghosts actually. And, uh, she mentions the fourth ghost and that Arthur's wife is the fourth ghost. And I don't forgot the name of the fourth ghost, which makes me feel like a shithead and I didn't note it, but whatever. She basically explains that, you know, 
you know, Cyrus said in the video that this was his life's work, the house was. And then she explains what that really meant. And that the house is actually a machine designed by the devil and powered by the dead. And that 12 specific ghosts, not them, but the ones that fit the narrative, are drawn together and power the house. I really like that line, built by the devil and powered by the dead. Yeah, designed by the devil and powered by the dead. Powering it up for what? To open the ocularis infernum. The eye of hell? So it would be this eye that sees all, past and future. So Dennis brings up, well, Cyrus said something about a 13th ghost. What the hell is that? And Colleen explains that the 13th ghost is a sacrifice. It's a sacrifice of pure love that once all the other ghosts are gathered around the machine at the moment that everything's supposed to fucking happen, that a sacrifice of pure love would stop everything. But it had to be done during the final configuration. Bullshit. Anyways. (laughs) So I think it's Dennis that's like, no, you can't ask Arthur to sacrifice himself, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. And she's like, well, there's always plan B, (laughs) which is the fucking explosives. I think it was Maggie. Maggie didn't want him to die. Maybe. So Dennis and Arthur have to go search for the kids before time runs out because they're realizing, you know, X amount of ghosts are being released and they're all going to be drawn to the thing. I hate it when I have ghosts drawn to my thing. (laughs) It's very awkward when I'm trying to be. So uh, Dennis and Arthur have a piece of glass, (laughs) a plate of glass that they're walking around with for -hmm, protection. mm -hmm. It's actually pretty smart because they can't cross the glass. We'll just use it as a fucking shield. It's smart because it works because it's got the spells on it and shit, but it is kind of Scooby-Doo-ish. No pun intended. Fuck it, pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) And so while they're doing that, we've got Kalina and Maggie heading to the machine for plan B, the explosives. So the ghost of Cyrus ends up coming into the the room where the, the... so there's the spinny things in the floor up top the, that are spinning on the floor right now. And then down below, we keep seeing the lion's gate machine. Um, which, <laughs> okay, good. It really is. <laughs> All these fucking spinning cogs and shit. Then that's the room where the lawyer lifted the thing. And we, we, we start to realize where, where everything is in this main control room right under that floor. And uh, that's the room that Maggie and Kalina go into. So Cyrus comes walking into this room and... Uh, because they've got the fucking glasses on so they can see him, or at least Kalina does. And uh, Kalina goes to knock Cyrus the fuck out with the spell book and knocks Maggie the fuck out with the spell book. And then Cyrus fucking kisses Kalina. What the fuck? Well, obviously he's alive. And they you can see the, the makeup work on his neck, and they actually planned originally to have that big piece of metal in his neck okay. <laughs> for the rest of the fucking movie. They're like... He can't walk through the doors. <laughs> He's like that's gonna be too too comical. It was too damn big. And I think uh, Arthur does a weird thing, taking his glasses on and off, and realizing he can still see him. Right? Oh yeah, yeah. we're gonna get to that. But uh, at this point, we're like, oh shit, he's alive. And the setup's been so obvious. It was his life's work. We already knew about the 13th ghost, so there's still some fuckery afoot with that. And this all was planned, obviously. And uh, Cyrus tells Kalina that. Uh, He's got to put the kids in danger to convince Arthur to sacrifice himself because he doesn't seem willing, which kind of feels like none of the guests feel scared enough to actually pull the trigger. I'm just saying there's some story elements here that really feel pulled from the same well. Right. Because they were there. 
anyways, and he's like, put him in real fucking danger. And she's like apprehensive about the whole thing. And uh, she's not immediately down with it. And Cyrus hits play on the fucking tape machine to play the incantation to call all the ghosts together. And he hits a lever causing this wall to fucking start flying and it crushes Kalina. That's the worst special effect in the movie, in my opinion. And Berger's pissed about it because there's a practical long take of it that was cut from the fucking movie. Oh, really? That sucks. Yes. Because. Rating or something or what? They were going to end up doing a setup to where the kids got trapped in the same thing. Okay. So that way we saw the horrifying death of her. So when that happens to the kids, we're more fearful of what's going to happen. They changed how it was going to play out with the kids and said, well, we just need to see her die. What a fucking letdown. But yeah, Berger's not happy about it on the commentary. I'm not happy about it. <laughs> yeah, because it looks it looks okay until the very end, and then it's like, uh-uh. It's just shitty early 2000 CGI. I mean, yeah, but he's like, fuck it. If you don't have the fucking vision that I have, you're dead weight and killed her ass is, is, is what we get out of it. Back to Dennis and Arthur. They get attacked by the hammer, and they quickly get pinned into this corner with their plate of glass, and Dennis comes out to protect Arthur behind the plate of glass to, and kind of lure uh, the hammer away. But unfortunately, the fucking juggernaut is released, and the juggernaut just picks up Dennis and folds his ass in half around a corner, just like in his vision. And I do like that he gets a realization that that's what's about to happen. My vision was this moment and I have to take this corning gorilla glass and I have to protect <laughs> Arthur with it and sacrifice myself because I've seen it happen. Right? Like he doesn't fight his fate. Nope. Cause he actually does. He realizes it and he fucking oh, yeah. does it. It, it. It's an actual sacrifice. Like he knows he's going to die. He's seen it happen. Yep. So just as this happens, the ghosts are actually, they're starting to notice the incantation and they start getting drawn away. And uh, with the couple other ones that uh, we didn't mention, there's the woman in the stockade. The pilgrim. Yeah, the pilgrim. Um, you've got the kid and the mom. The giant and the dire mom or whatever. Yep. That should be all of them. Actually, I, I have this right here for you. Hold on. You had the firstborn son, which was the little boy, right? Oh, yeah. I didn't even mention him. Yeah, yeah, and he popped up a bunch. The torso, the bound woman, the withered lover, which that was the wife that you were looking for earlier. Ivy. Yeah, Ivy. <laughs> the torn prince, the angry princess, the pilgrims, which there's only one that I saw, the yeah. great child and the dire mother, the hammer, the jackal, the juggernaut, and the broken heart. Those are your 13. I pulled them out. They're really neat. Like in the, the sketchbooks, really neat. I'd like to have the artwork of that. It's kind of cool. Even though when she's going through all of them, one of them, they show the wrong picture while she's saying it. Oh, do they really? They show the bound woman while she's saying the angry princess, if I remember correctly. But one of them's wrong. They pointed out in the commentary. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> but uh, so as they're being called away, mom reveals herself to Arthur, but she's quickly called to the heart of the house with everybody else. This house does not have many hearts and only has one. There's my poltergeist joke. So Arthur ends up heading to, quote unquote, the heart of the house. And those spinning rings that we've been seeing in, in the floor in this room throughout the movie, they're concentric circles. Um, they're now these like spinning blades of death flipping up out of the floor that have an age. Some well. other shitty CGI. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, wow. <laughs> Why was I the polite one this time? <laughs> I don't know. I, I fucking hate shitty CGI. I don't know why that <laughs> irks me so much more than other things. But this is where we've got the kids trapped in the middle now as these blades fucking spin around them. But every now and then they all hit the floor at the same time. So as Arthur's seeing this, he counts the ghosts that have gathered all the way around it. 
but uh, he realizes, oh shit, they're all here. It's time to embrace your fucking superpowers, man. Become the 13th ghost. <laughs> and he's wearing the ghost glasses, of course, because he can see the ghosts. And he takes his glasses off as he spots Cyrus. And when he pulls the glasses off, he still sees Cyrus. So right. now he knows Cyrus is still alive. I love that part. I got to get into the ghost glasses here for a second. And I didn't find out about this until the watch party that just happened is when this got talked about. Um, so the glasses are obviously a throwback to the 3D glasses they used in the original movie. I'm so glad you're bringing that up. I was going to bring it up at the end. I'm so glad you're doing that. <laughs> they weren't used for 3D. They were used to decide which side you looked through to choose whether or not you would see the ghost because it was a black and white film and they wanted to use the red and blue filters to actually show the spirits in the movie. Yeah, because they were they basically advertised it. If you're brave enough, put on these glasses. Yeah. And if you didn't have the glasses on, you would just see shit moving around and stuff like that. But if you you put them on, you could see the ghost doing it. Really fucking cool idea. <laughs> so let's go back to ILM for a minute. It was Ooh. originally written that this film, they wanted the audience to only see the ghosts if they had special glasses. They wanted to modernize That's badass. it. They were in talks with ILM to do it. Okay. Joel fucking Silver shot it down when ILM couldn't produce a working demo fast enough. Which is crazy because they spit shit out super fast usually. Yeah, but this is, you're asking the theaters have to be equipped to have special yeah, shutter right, glasses. Right. Amazing idea here. But uh, the idea was that the audience wouldn't learn the truth about Cyrus until Arthur did. Not the earlier gotcha. scene with Kalina. I read this anyways, and this wasn't from any commentary, so it could be fucking bullshit. But <laughs> supposedly Steve Beck, being like a special effects guy, wanted to make sure the glasses were in the movie. Yeah. In some capacity, right? So he's like, I'll make them wear it so they can see the ghost just like the original movie. And it probably all comes back down to this. Yes. But had they pulled this off the way it was originally intended... And it would have fit so good with the gimmicks of the William Castle films with like the Tingler and shit. You know, there was always yeah. some kind of gimmick going on in his movies. But at any rate, with Arthur now realizing that he's been hoodwinked here, he fucking goes charging down the hall to attack Cyrus. And Cyrus beats the shit out of him while berating him <laughs> about not being a man all at the same time. I mean, it's just, it's, it's like you coming at me. No, <laughs> now get your ass into the machine. <laughs> but all of a sudden the incantation goes fucking haywire. Like the tape machines eating the tape and it's DJ fucking raw digger fucking going to town on the machine. You're going to have to take this into the shop. So in doing so, She's just so she does that and then she runs over to all the throw handles that are on the wall and is like flipping all the handles and grabbing knobs and shit and Lionsgate starts to fucking jam and fall apart. <laughs> and, it's like uh, they just released another Rob Zombie giant, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and of course, the ghosts no longer bound by the incantation turn around and they're like, here's the asshole that put us all here. Which it reminds me of something. They take them to an orgy of the damned. N no. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of another movie where somebody gets their comeuppance from all the ghosts or all the zombies or something. I don't know. Something for another day. But they come and they grab Cyrus kind of unceremoniously and just throw his ass into the spinning CGI of death. And he gets chopped to bits. And then the ghost of Pritchett shows up. I mean, Dennis, 
who tells Arthur, go get your kids, man. But it's, it just, it feels as bad as it does when Pritchett shows up in fucking House on Haunted Hill. I'm sorry. I'm beating this le- like the dead horse it is, but I got to point it out. You know, the other ones, I was going to let it slide, but really, that is so fucking Pritchett coming in to save the day. Yeah. Like it 100% is, man. So, um, <laughs> Arthur sits there and he's watching. Now, I remember, like I said, every now and then, every few seconds, all the blades go flat. Just a couple of seconds. And he makes the perfectly timed jump. Like, NES hard time jump. Like, fuck that, it's Game Boy hard. <laughs> you you got to get... Fucking button doesn't work half the time? <laughs> but he makes the jump into the into the middle of the machine just in time to hold the kids while Lionsgate explodes below and God bless. I love that you call it Lionsgate. <laughs> um, and the blade stops spinning because the machine's now destroyed. Now I do want to point out real quick. If the machine was already being destroyed by Maggie and it was going to fall apart anyways, did we really need the dramatic jump? I mean, I understand we needed a big payoff at the end, but if he had just stood there two minutes longer, like smoke a cigarette first or something, he wouldn't have had to have made the death jump. I agree. That part really stood out to me. and was kind of awkward. Obviously, she was blowing the machine up, and I, I guess you could argue that shrapnel might hit one of the kids or something, but... I mean, he could have got cut into a million pieces by the fucking ninja blender. So, I mean, it could have gone awry either way. But what really confused me right here, and maybe you can correct me. I only watched this movie twice recently, maybe twice in the past. Right. But when Kalina told the whole story about the 13th ghost being a sacrifice, she was full of shit at that point in time. Right. Yes. But then he ended up doing it anyways. Yeah. Like, it, I don't know. It was poor writing to me on that part. But I mean, yeah, he lived, but he tried to sacrifice himself, basically. But the ghosts were gone. So it wasn't in the quote unquote final configuration. So the power wasn't there when he jumped. Mm, you're right. The shit should have just exploded, though. We would have called it a day. Yeah. And I would have been OK with that. I wouldn't have been like, man, I needed something more at the end. It would have. Anyways, sticking point for me. Yeah. Maggie would have been the hero. She blew the fucking machine up and he runs in and gets his kids. And, you know, fucking would have been cool. Yeah. But we see the ghosts that, like you mentioned earlier, it's not that they were bad or evil or anything. They just fit the mold for the spell. They just bugger off into the woods. Like, we're free yeah. now. We don't have to be in these stupid fucking cubes staring each, at each other for all of eternity anymore. Because really, like I said earlier, only a couple of the ghosts were full on aggressive. The jackal, namely. Yeah. And, I mean, the juggernaut was beaten on glass windows with the bat. Oh, I hate it when they do that, you know. But Well, no, no, no. That was the, the angry print or the torn the, prince. The, print, the torn prince. Yeah, I'm sorry. I said the wrong ghost. But he was doing that. I mean, the juggernaut was obviously angry. But, I mean, they were fucking spraying blood and, like, fucking pissing in his junkyard. So, I don't know. It's just kind of weird how they're portrayed. He was a serial killer in his junk or who worked at a junkyard. And that's where he took his victims. See, they all had... They had backstories, but he, he like that. That's really cool. We didn't get that. So yeah. if you weren't going to put the whole shebang in there and make the movie 30 minutes longer and, you know, pay a billion dollars <laughs> for ILM to your special effects, <laughs> then you should have shot your hour and a half small budget horror movie appropriately. You yes. know what I'm saying? But so the ghosts have been free, including mom, who actually shows up, not all Freddy Krueger up one side of her face to say goodbye to the family. And they're walking out and we hear Maggie going on a rant about how she didn't sign up for this shit. I quit credits and I didn't see this one back in the day. I didn't watch this until I met my wife. Oh, really? Yep. I saw this one in theaters and uh, I mean, I liked it then. I liked it now, especially after watching 
House on Haunted Hill. Uh, Still like House on Haunted Hill better. The end is so bad to me that it like kills everything cool that I watched for the past hour and 15 minutes <laughs> for House on Haunted Hill. And, and we already covered that episode. So I'm not going to beat that with that horse. That's what it, I just didn't like the goop monster thing at the end. It would have yeah. been cooler if it was just a mind fuck like the original. This one, I don't remember the original as much other than the glasses aspect of it, but it told its own unique story. With that being said, once you tell me about all this backstory they had about the ghost and, and no pun on the name intended, they could have gone like 13 ghosts to Scooby-Doo with it and made like a mini series out of it. Or yep. hell, even like a three season TV show with these 13 ghosts and it coming to this fucking crazy thing at the end and them having to stop it and each ghost having their own fucking backstory and we see them getting hunted down and then you have to defeat each one in a unique way. Like you said, the fire on the jackal would have made a fucking amazing miniseries or, you know, pre-written none of that. Oh, we're seven seasons in and we just got canceled <laughs> shit, but you know, like a three to five season show. And I think this story would have fucking gone miles longer. I think it would have been a lot better. Oh yeah, it could have. You could have roped me in a lot more with more backstory on the ghost, because once you're in the house, it, like a lot of movies I've complained about here recently, there's just too much drug on for what little bit of substance is there, and there's a huge glaring missed opportunity. You know, seeing the movie and not knowing the detail of the backstory of the ghost, it was just like, okay, well, we just needed 13 ghosts. K and B is cool, but actually knowing that and everything, it's like, holy shit, you could have turned this movie all the way around and done an. 45 minutes or an hour setup of the ghost yeah. with, with a side story of them being hunted and then get to the house and the payoff. Anyways. Hell, a movie trilogy have done right. It, the thing is, it's a, it's a good, fun horror movie with awesome practical effects, good actors. I mean, it, it's a good movie all around. It's just there was enough shit there to make it actually like some sort of lengthy franchise or, or TV series, really. And it would have been nice to see all that. Well, but unfortunately, after the lack of success of both House on Haunted Hill and 13 Ghosts, that ended the idea for Dark Castle Entertainment to just do William Castle films. And they branched off and they even branched off away from horror. What's interesting is, oh, fuck, I think it's Joel Silver. I may be wrong. Since leaving his offices at Warner Brothers, now has offices at Universal and has had a couple of talks or encounters or the idea at least floated of him and Jason Blum working together through Dark Castle Entertainment. That'd be interesting. Yeah. I mean, he's produced a lot of big movies. <laughs> there, yeah, there could be something interesting there. Well, I think it's fun that we went through a block of Haunted House movies, um, especially since we had kind of inadvertently covered some of the, the better ones and like the jewels that that people always think of. And uh Maybe some of y'all got to hear some things that you hadn't seen or you had forgotten about with these. Um, and like you said, we got to, to cover the one that kind of really started it when you think about it and started the tropes with, uh, with Amityville. And there's other haunted house movies out there. I just, I don't know if this is one of them that we're necessarily going to be able to circle back to, especially soon. I mean, like we could pull vampire and werewolf movies and shit out of our ass all day long, but a lot of the good haunted house movies are franchises and we've covered them. Yep. So. You know, we, we did Poltergeist, we've done Insidious, we've done Conjuring, you know, and it's it's paranormal activity even in there. And it's, um, you know, it, it was nice to think of a couple to go back on, but we've hit 
two classic staples with Amityville and House, which we grew up on. And then, hell, we even went into some remakes here. So, I mean, it's it's just interesting to be. I'm going to get surprised somewhere down the road and watch a Haunted House movie. Be like, oh, I got an idea for number three. But <laughs> right now, I'm blank. There's more out there. And for anybody listening to this and screaming, Hausu, have you ever seen the Japanese house, Hausu? I was actually asked at work today if we were going to cover that at some point. It's out there. <laughs> it is <laughs> fucking out there, man. <laughs> he wanted to know if we were going to do foreign horror films. And I said, yeah, but it's going to be broken down more like Korean horror films, Japanese horror films. That one, I've never seen it, but it comes up a lot. I could see that going on a Japanese horror films episode. Yeah, you got to be ready to take that ride. It is no <laughs> it is no train to Bouchon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's it for our second Haunted House episode, so you'll have to tune in on the next episode when we cover the Sinister franchise. I got a really good feeling about this. As usual, guys, thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word. Please do not forget to rate and review us online, and please, please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. We would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbspodcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. Not afraid of you anymore, 